just trying to stay close to people and still have those conversations that you only get when you're in a taxi or you only get when you're waiting for a meeting to start and someone's running late. All those little things seem like they're small and unimportant maybe at the time, but I think now you realize that they give you this foundation to be able to have other conversations in, a, in an easier and kind of more more human way. So really just mi- missing that that side of things and just really glad that we're mostly kind of back together now so that we can be doing more of that. What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have an old friend here, Hugh Munro, who's head of planning at the Monkeys in Sydney. You know what, Hugh? I remember the person who interviewed you for the job in which I worked with you. I remember them coming back from the interview saying, I think we've got one. I think we've got someone. And they gave me a quick debrief about who it was and what they'd done and why your brain had turned this person on. And I think you know who I'm talking about, but I wanted to say, uh, I've never told you that story before, but also welcome to Sweatheads. Good to be chatting to you. Thanks. It's uh, great to chat to you and it was a relief to get the job and it's nice to hear that a long time later. I definitely needed it having uh, back then been made redundant only a couple of weeks before. So um, it it certainly came at the right time for me back then. We are talking about McCann Erickson, obviously. Uh, Before that, you'd worked at the Campaign Palace, which is where my old boss, Todd Sampson, who's a bit of a figure in uh, Australia right now because he has about 15 and a half television shows and has worked them all for at least a decade each. He's, got, he's basically like a mini, mini Hollywood there. I'm, I'm being super dramatic. But yeah, he, he worked at the Campaign Palace and the Campaign Palace was uh, on William Street. McCann was on William Street. Uh, you've worked at BMF, Tongue, you know, at the Monkeys. Like you've had a pretty prolific uh, planning career, at least in the, the brand names that you've worked with in Australia. I mean, they're, they're all kind of like top 10, right, in Australia? Fair to say? Yeah, and some of them still exist even. I guess that's the other scary part of it is you start to look back at the depths of your uh, LinkedIn profile and see names that don't exist anymore like the Campaign Palace and like Tongue. Um, but, uh, but certainly the you know, BMF and the Monkeys have, have had, had a lot of success in the last, last few years, which is really nice to be a part of. Yeah. Now, would you say the Monkeys, creatively speaking, is top seven or top one creative agency in Australia? I would say top one. <laughs> So I'd say top one, um, but I, you know I think these things are pretty subjective, and and people have their own sensibilities and their own um, biases for what they think great creative is. And I probably would have changed my mind from um, working at different sorts of agencies and with different sorts of outputs. So I think everyone has their own own points of view, whether that's uh, a, a bias that's just a, a temporary one or one that is one that's uh, more more deeply held. But um, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to think we're certainly up there. So I have no idea to what degree the monkeys are internationally renowned. I'm sure they're internationally renowned in, in many ways, but maybe not in all the ways that holding companies would be because they're everywhere. Uh, can you help us understand the, I guess, the origin story of the monkeys? Where do they come from? How do they become well-known? Why do people regard them so well? And the context for that series of questions is that I, I feel that right now there's going to be a bunch of people setting something up and they're like, we probably shouldn't do it right now. We probably shouldn't set up. And then, yeah, we've heard all the stories about how crisis is when you set a thing up and then you come out really strong, but should we really do it? And, you know, the monkeys is a bit of an example, I think, of a, of a company that just really, uh, maybe it doesn't feel like that or has not felt like that for everyone who's worked there, but just knew what it wanted to do and then did it. And those two things <laughs> like, are not always prized in the way that they probably could be or should be. 
What's their story? Yeah, so their, their story was um, three founders that, that came together coming out of other established traditional agency brands, um, Mark Green, Scott Noellen, Justin Drape, who set out to go and start their own thing, um, which I think everyone has in the back of their head at some stage in their career, but only a few have the guts to do it. I don't, don't think I'm one of those that has the guts to actually follow through on it. But they uh, went out on their own. And and the thing that really um, potentially drove their, their success was real clarity over who they were and what they wanted to do. Um, so they, they put at their core the idea of provocative thinking. Um, that's that's the brand essence of the monkeys. We've, you know, we like to give our, our clients a brand essence and, of course, we do one for ourselves as well. So everything comes back to that one place. And then the, the next layer on top of that was where they saw themselves applying that and it was not just in advertising but at the intersection of advertising, entertainment and technology. And that, I think that clarity, that definition about what they do and when they want clients to come to them for provocative thinking allowed them to position themselves in a way to get the type of work they wanted to get and then to use that, um, the success of that work to continue growing. The thing that, that was kind of interesting for me, I, I, was, I was watching the monkeys come up when I was working at Tongue and at the time, I guess we kind of liked to see ourselves in a, in a similar competitive set when we found ourselves pitching against the monkeys a lot from the other side of the fence and sometimes having some, some success but not as much as what we at Tongue probably wanted to. And I think the thing that, that they did really, really well was when they brought in um, Fabio Baresti, who's the EPD, is a real commitment to long-term brand building and, and designing brand strategies that are really there for the, for the long-term. And once you've got that in place, it, it frees everyone up to apply that provocative thinking in really imaginative ways. Mm-hmm. Um, since that time, but I've been pretty lucky to to grow to the point that they are now and go from having kind of uh, chippy upstart type of, of briefs to looking after some of, some of the bigger brands here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I've done a good job of reeling off the corporate pitch speech. How was that? No, it was good. It was good. No, you, you're allowed to do that corporate speech. We'll have real talk as well, but I, I you know, <laughs> It's not to discount what you just said. I mean, since I left uh, Australia nine years ago, nine and a half years ago, there's been this Cambrian explosion of a lot of market marketing science research from that region. Obviously, Byron Sharp and Mark Ritson has been there. I think he's back in England right now. And so there has been, well, also Bennett and Fields is probably more of a an effusion of thinking from the APG and FEs from the UK to Australia. There's probably a stronger back and forth there than there is between the US and the UK, I think, in general. Uh, it's not to put anyone down or to make any uh, strange assertions there, but uh, the, you know, the idea of building a brand for the long term or where you worked at BMF, they talk about the long idea. These are ideas that really popped off from the, the Byron Sharp and, Ritz, and sort of Mark Ritson worlds, even though they obviously have their own differences. When you talk about the EPD coming in and creating a, a culture and a way of thinking that actually created brands focusing on long-term strategy. What does that even mean? So one thing that really struck me when I started at the Monkeys was a real discipline of at the core of any brand strategy defining what the essence was. Um, it's something that I kind of noticed was just was everywhere and, and anyone here could rattle off that one or two word phrase which summed up the essence of the brand. And it's not, I think part of the, the tension with it is you're always told you have to do something that's really distinctive for the brand, but also sets it up to um, be able to stretch and have length and breadth and depth. And yet sometimes those two things don't go together. Sometimes 
you have to give up a little bit of the distinctiveness from that essence to have something that is broad and long. And I think that's okay. And if there's kind of a, a, a willingness to say it's all right to have an essence that not isn't necessarily that distinctive, um, but your, your distinctiveness can come through other areas of the brand strategy, then that's what I think can set it up for the for the long run. That discipline is one that's applied pretty um, pretty uh, rigorously and ruthlessly Q. here. So Q. that helps. Q. Q. We've known each other well enough for me to be able to ask you this question. You just use some fancy language and some fancy concepts there, distinctive essence, broad and long. Give it to me in real talk. What are you talking about? All right. So whenever you want anyone to encounter a brand and to be able to represent it um, and know what it's about, it can help to just get it down to a single word. And, and when you've got that one word that can guide you, everything else can be about that and you can make a judgment call on whether a decision actually builds upon that meaning, um, whether, whether it doesn't. So, for, you know, for us in, in Australia, our flag-carrying airline, Qantas, is just about belonging. All it is about is making people feel like they belong um, and belong to Australia. And everything they do can come back to just creating that feeling of, of belonging. And once you get that, you've got the basis for you know, anything you want to do around it that can be a little bit more provocative. So, yeah, that, that, I guess that's what we mean by the essence of, of what a brand's about. And I think what we're seeing now is with the, the long thing, which, yeah, as you say, was, it was a real kind of trendy thing and even positioning around the long idea and, and measuring in that way too. There's also the, the kind of the new wave of that is bringing together experience as well as um, what the brand stands for and trying to bring that brand essence into the experience it gets designed to. So again, having something really, really simple like a one or two word essence that sums up what the brand's about can, can make that, that whole lot easier for people that maybe aren't familiar with the brand world to apply it in those ways. Mm. Yeah, I feel like the marketing sciences that are well-known right now, it makes our jobs easier than ever. And yet people still find unnecessary nuance to talk about the marketing sciences. Like this is a whole crew. Well, friends, they get into the marketing sciences. But at the end of the day, it's like pick a word or two, solve a problem, help someone understand what problem you're going to solve for them, and then stand out and have distinctive assets and communicate that for a long time. And then you get your, uh, um, I guess, your brand building versus activation, communication proportion, right? Like there's five or six things you need to do and they're simpler than ever in many ways. And yet we still find ways to complicate the conversation about these things. Do you feel, I'm kind of curious because, you know, we worked together, well, nine and a half years ago plus, right? What's changed in that time? Do you feel it's simpler than ever, that it's easier to guide clients to these uh, concepts that have been proven out and then what you add on top of that is the provocative thinking. Yeah, I think there's a point at which all that complexity becomes so overwhelming that you just have to put it to the side and just go, oh, all, the, all these kind of these terms and models and different ways of designing things to be the most effective, all of it's kind of in the end saying pretty much the same thing and it's a lot of it's common sense. Mm. Um, so I think there's a certain liberty that comes from acknowledging the complexity, putting it in a dumpster, lighting a match, and then spending your time applying nuance where you really should, which is defining what a brand should be about, um, not nuance in how this model is different from that model. Favorite piece of provocative thinking from the monkeys since you've joined them? I think the way the monkeys took the Lamb Australia Day 
campaign mm-hmm. and reframed it from being kind of a um, calling out people for being un-Australian um, to being something that was much more focused on unity and bringing people together, but still retaining a lot of the provocation within that. It was kind of a, a subtle shift, but a, a pretty big one because yeah. by making Lamb all about unity and bringing people together, it then opened up a whole lot more different ways for them, you know, for us to execute that each year. So for, for anyone that isn't familiar with the kind of the, the famous saga um, of the annual Lamb Australia Day campaigns, it's, it started with basically a, uh, a man behind a desk that was, for all intents and purposes, the Australian Prime Minister addressing the nation and telling them what's not Australian and what is Australian, um, calling out things like people like vegetarians and saying it's un-Australian. And I think when the, when the monkeys got a hold of that, of that brand, they did a wonderful job of keeping some of the edge of that delivery and actually keeping, um, keeping some of the same talent as well, but, but shifting it to a place where it was really about bringing people together as opposed to calling people out for not being um, part of Australian. Yeah, that's been a bit of a shift because the calling out for, of people not being Australian has obviously, obviously become something of a right wing, an extreme right wing thing since uh, social media was, uh, was, was massive. For people who are not familiar with Australia Day, what's that? And then talk to me about the role of lamb in Australia Day because this campaign uh, to do with lamb that's obviously run through a couple of agencies that you've worked at, right? BMF, I think, mm-hmm. it used to have that client. Uh, and, and it's super famous. And it's, it's not that the lamb campaign is equivalent to the way that the UK does the Christmas campaigns, but it, it, it's kind of in that genre in a way that the UK might look down upon Australia and be like, what are they talking about? Uh, so can you give us some context to lamb, but also Australia Day? Yeah, so I'll give you context to Australia Day to, to start, I think. It's, it's something that I, I'm nervous talking about because it is a um, very sensitive issue in Australia. So on the 26th of January each year, um, there is a, a tradition where uh, Australians get together, light a barbecue and drink too much beer and, and celebrate the country that was, that was founded then. What people are becoming more aware of, and there's been a real push in the, in the last five or so years, is acknowledging the fact that we're actually celebrating what was the invasion of a country that was inhabited by the longest um, ongoing civilization on earth. Uh, and it was in, invaded on that day. And, and I think for, for most of the history of Australia Day, that was completely forgotten. Um, I think what's, what's good is that people are becoming more aware of that. There's now a push to potentially shift the date to come up with an, you know, a, an additional date to celebrate first Australians as well. So it's it's actually quite a politically charged topic, and it's it's one of the reasons that with Meat and Livestock Australia, who who run the the land brand, have have kind of pushed away from just doing something on that date. So to the other part of the question, um, what is what is with Lamb on Australia Day? BMF, who who created the campaign originally, saw an opportunity to, as you said, create a bit of a cultural ritual. Um, in a similar way to the UK does it with with Christmas and give people something to look forward to each Australia Day as something we can all rally around and get excited by. And it became this campaign that each year Australians would kind of wonder what's the lamb ad going to be this year because it was quite provocative, really entertaining. And and each year it got harder and harder and harder to execute it and it became more and more about what can we do that's uh, crazy and silly and... um, and, um, 
and do something really, really kind of unexpected. But for the brand to really be about unity and bring people together, it, it came to the point where I think it was three years ago now, it was, it was time to actually take into account those people that were deeply offended by just the notion of Australia Day um, and to remove it from being a campaign that was just on that day, celebrating that day um, and more about bringing Australians together towards the end of end of January and, and through summer. Yeah. So it's January 26th and that's towards the end of the Australian summer, as you just said, and it's also when schools are about to go back, uh, depending on whether they're government or, or public, which is not public as in the public in England, but public as in government uh funded versus private, but there's like a week or two difference there. I'm just pointing out some nuances because I'm trying to relate to Hugh because he's having a very corporate conversation with me, which is totally throwing me. <laughs> uh, but the point is that uh, like Australia Day is not like the Super Bowl for advertising in Australia, nor is it like the UK Christmas for advertising. But the the LAMP campaign has been pretty, pretty significant. It's been a long stay for a decade and a half, right? And, and, and some of the, some of the, Australia's best creative, depending on the agency. Well, with all the agencies, has, has come out ar- around that time for, for LAMP, right? Yeah, it has. It has. This is good. So, oh, what I want to do for is yeah. the rest of the conversation, Hugh. This is like you, uh, I like this. I like this. Head of planning at the Monkeys. So, um, I spoke to Christina Aventia, who would, you would know very well. And when I have conversations with some people that I know, from Australia because I, I, I grew up in the areas literally within the suburbs that a lot of you work in these days because everyone mm. works in the inner city. And I, I spent yeah, maybe 20 plus years around Glebe and Camperdown and Ultimo and near Piermont when they weren't what they are now. Uh, and then I, I, I chat to everyone and there's this weird distance that some of you bring into this conversation, even though you've known me for a long time, just because I've been away for a long time and I want to close <laughs> that distance. I want to, I want to close the gap. So when we initially talked about what we were going to talk about, the, for some reason, the word therapy came up for you. And uh, you are about three days back into working in an office in Sydney because of COVID-19 and Australia did close down. Small population. And I, look, I love how Australia and New Zealand and a, a bunch of small countries have been called out for relatively speaking, well-managed situations. And I know Australia is a bit more complicated than, say, New Zealand. But you're three days back in. How are you feeling? Pretty good. Really good, actually. And, yeah, I, it, it's, it's nice to just be around people in person again and enough people for there to be a bit of, um, bit of a buzz and a bit of a vibe around and to have the sort of, uh, sort of sideline conversations that you used to have and a lot of that kind of communication that's important but isn't just on the an item on a meeting agenda mm. which you miss out on when you're just looking through a screen and going through the meeting agenda so it's yeah it's really nice to be around around people again it's fine i'm coming i'm coming into this conversation hot because my uh my television just had a particular youtuber called laser beam on it for about three hours are you familiar with laser beam no, no. Shoot, Tell me about Laser Beam. Oh, come on. Laser Beam's like an Aussie from the Central Coast and he's, he gets like billions of views. He's like a Fortnite player, Roblox player. Uh, he's been awarded for all this. He's in a movie. He's got a movie coming out. I think Ryan Reynolds is in it, but he's this Aussie guy and he does typical Aussie, Aussie speak. And sometimes we have uh, some of the Aussie streamers on the television. I, I just feel at home for a brief minute, but I've had three hours of that, so I'm bringing that heat into this conversation, and I'm trying to I'm trying to warm you up. Um, I'm ho- I'm hoping we've uh, hopefully flushed out some of the corporate talk, and we can actually uh, that's what I do uh, get to that stuff. Because yeah, good, good. <laughs> What's been the hardest thing for you this year? 
as a, you know what, as a head of planning, I'm going to situate you and center that question around your role, your professional title. How does thing for you as a head of planning this year? Oof. I think just trying to, trying to stay close to people and still have those conversations that you only get when you're in a taxi or you only get when you're waiting for a meeting to start and someone's running late. And all those things just don't seem to happen when um, you're working through Teams or through Zoom. And there's so much communication that happens in those moments and so much of kind of getting close to people. And all those little things like seem like they're small and unimportant maybe at the time. But I think now you realize that they give you this foundation to be able to have other conversations in, a, in an easier and kind of more more human way. So really just miss, missing that that side of things and just really glad that we're mostly kind of back together now so that we can be doing more of that. Um, I'm going to go I've, deep. I really gonna go deep. We're going to go emo, yeah. mate. You trust me? I trust you. Let's do it. What is a close professional relationship? I think when you when you can have the ability to call out when you need help and need a hand and or when you think you could have done something better, but you're looking for a little bit of affirmation from somebody. I know I'm like that, certainly. Like I need to feel like I can um, yell out when I think I'm not doing something very well and partly need practical help, but also partly need a little bit of uh, a verbal cuddle to say, it's all right, you, it's actually good what you're doing and um, and we value it. Because I think the the other thing with the changed way that we've been working as well is you've got more time to question the value of what you do. Coming to terms with that is something that I think just just talking to other planners at the moment is something that everyone's finding themselves reflecting on more than ever. And it's it's hard, isn't it? I, I know I've got I've got a three year old and a one year old and whenever the ads come on, my three year old goes, Oh, ads and it's not like she's watching ads she doesn't like. She's watching ABC. So they're just station promos for the shows she watches all the time. It's our, the ABC is our, our public mm-hmm. broadcaster. So they don't actually run real ads. They just run promos for the shows. And so if she's complaining about those ads and, and to see a three-year-old kind of look at the product of what you do and kind of kick the head back and go, oh, I hate this. It's interrupting what I really want to be doing. Uh, you can't help but reflect on that a little bit. So it gets you having conversations with yourself in your head that you might not have had in the same way before. Mm. Taxis, yeah. why did that come up? You talked about closeness in taxis. Why is the taxi in Sydney, Australia, such an important place uh, for you to actually be able to broach some kind of uh, proximity in a professional relationship? There's no, there's no agenda when you get into a taxi and they're often short rides and you might be there for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, but you don't necessarily have anything that you need to talk about. But there's this, there's often when you're with people in a taxi, there's this kind of collective exhalation. Everyone gets in, kind of winds down the window, goes, oh, and then can talk about it in, a, in a, maybe uh, in a different way. Like maybe there was a bit of tension that was causing them to kind of uh, hold their breath a little bit or, or lift their shoulders up or, or tense up. But the moment you kind of get into a taxi, there's, yeah, a little bit of a collective exhale and, and a moment of, kind of reflecting on, on something together that you don't you know, get to do otherwise. Mm. Yeah, look, what, what, what's interesting, and, and um, I hope you get on with Christina, but she's coming to mind, but like talking to you, you're head of planning at the Monkeys, which is one of the best creative agencies in the world. Christina Aventi runs planning at, at BMF, which is also one of the best agencies in the world. And the way that both of you talk and other friends that I have in Australia who are super, you know, 
bosses, super bosses. I say super now for you, by the way. It's an American thing. You just talk like this and then you go do incredible work. And America's, it's almost the opposite. I'm going to let that linger for a little bit. It's almost the opposite in that you, if you moved here, you, you would have to learn how to not talk the way you're talking right now because America wouldn't get it. They don't, they don't get that, that gentleness, especially in advertising. You have to be all hubris. I'm saying this in a, in a fun way because uh, I struggle to make good work here and I struggle to fit in and that's why I do what I do right now. And so hearing you talk, I'm like, man, I feel like we're just having a chat across the table like we did 10, 12 years ago on, on William Street and it's just normal and then you go do good work and it's not a big thing, but that's what you're there to do. And there's something that's really precious about that to me. I think that's what I'm pointing out right now. Yeah, I, it, it's funny just like reflecting on what you're saying. And, and I, I mean, I'm glad I, in a way that I haven't tried because I'd be worried that if I, if I did that, then being a relatively like malleable personality that I think I am. Um, and if I spend too much time around people, I end up talking like them, um, which is really weird for them. And, um, and I think people find kind of weird when they, when they notice it. But knowing that I'm that kind of person that's quite malleable, I'd hate to think I'd go into a market that's like that and to be knocked into that place of um, feeling like you have to, I guess, grandstand a little bit or try and talk with fancy words or talk with a certain level of uh, certainty about your point of view um, just to make sure that people feel confidence in you. That's probably not natural to who I am and I think that'd be hard to hard to shake afterwards. So, yeah, there must be some kind of... Um, it's, uh, it's reprogramming, reprogramming. Yeah, there is reprogramming. Through coming back. When you use the word malleable, what do you mean by that? What, why are you malleable? In what ways are you malleable? So the, I guess one, one thing that I kind of noticed, and and when someone first pointed it out to me, I felt really self conscious about it. Um, they, someone pointed out that you change the way you talk when you're with different people. And when you spend, when you spend time with someone, you actually start talking more like them and, and start adopting their accent. And, and I, I was really self-conscious about that because you feel like you're a fraud. You feel like you're kind of just doing something to fit in. And um, you even see it when people go overseas and they change their accent quickly and, and their friends go, oh, can you believe like they're already talking with that accent? So it's something that I think you can be quite self-conscious about when you first learn that you're that kind of person. Um, do you think it's true? Do you think, that, do you think it's true? That, that, that I am that, that kind of person malleable? or that? That you're malleable? I think so. I think so. Um, but I think, I think you can... Why do you think it's true can, and why do you do it? Uh, I, I think it's, a, it's not necessarily something that is um, something you do consciously, but maybe it's a personality trait. And the more you, I think, see the value in it, the more that you maybe try and um, play up to a little bit more and, and try and leave yourself open-minded to things and leave yourself um, like with permission to be a bit of a chameleon and to, to change your stripes in, in different situations and for that not to feel like you're, you're either kind of pandering to the people you're around or the, you're not being who you are or not being why true you, to yourself. Cause, why, do, yeah. why do you do it? Yeah. Why do you do it? Come on, direct. I don't know. I don't know. Why I, do I do think it? it's, 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 it's not conscious. I think you can, yeah. You think you being malleable is just subconscious? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Why, why, well, why would you do that subconsciously? Probably to adapt to the situation that you're in. Why would you want to adapt to a situation here? If you're uncomfortable, feel like an outsider and feel like you need to... Why um, would you feel uncomfortable and an outsider? planning. You're a white man. You're a middle-aged white man. You're the most privileged of privileged. Why would you feel the need to be malleable? 
That's all true. Where does this come from? Is it innate? Did you grow up around some stuff? What's going on? Uh, and also, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah. I think it's hard to pin, pinpoint where it comes from. Do you see it in the rest of your family? The people who've come before you? No, maybe not to the same degree. Somewhat, somewhat. But I think it's hard. It's hard to see it in them because you see them in a specific scenario. And in that scenario, they're kind of always the same person. And it's only when you adapt to different scenarios that you start to notice yourself, you know, being malleable and 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 changing up how you behave in those different situations. So I don't I don't know. Have people taken Maybe advantage of this? Probably. I guess as you said, like you're absolutely right when you say um, privilege is privileged. Very lucky. And so I never kind of feel like I have the need to look back and and wonder if someone's taken advantage of it. So Are you um, agreeing with me just because you're malleable? <laughs> So this is just the, the case in point, isn't it? It's it, it's fascinating as well when you when you kind of link that through to um, the conversations you have with yourself in your head, and and knowing some of those conversations that you have with yourself, and knowing the the tactics that you have to talk to yourself, and mm-hmm. um, and becoming more, I guess, more aware of of how you talk to yourself because it's not always um, that obvious. I think you kind of have to learn to notice it a little bit, and then. Once you do, then you can have hopefully more uh, constructive conversations with yourself, yeah. which I guess is what thinking is. So I get, un, no, you know, that's, but that's that's the point. That exact what you're talking about right now is the realization that I've been coming to in the past five years, and I'm probably five years older than you or so. And so what you're talking about, the way you talk yourself through some of the topics we've touched on, even though there's a vagueness with what we're touching on, like we're not touching it, we're like. A little bit distant from it, that becomes your operating system, and it's how you talk yourself through certain mm. situations. And you do that in in a really particular way as you age. I feel, or or you just go through the same routine, but you, you do it in a way where when you're young, you'd be like, "Why is my brain doing that? Why am I trying to talk back to it like that? That's ridiculous." So to to kind of make what we're talking about a little bit clearer and less vague, what are some of the questions you've had with yourself this year that you found? New, surprising, maybe difficult, maybe lovely. Yeah, I think I think like one of the big ones I touched on briefly earlier was like wondering more and more and having conversations more and more with myself about um, the value of what we do as as strategists and as brand planners. I think part of that might be fatigue as well, where we 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 think a lot. It's our job to think and you know, thinking is having a conversation with yourself, then um, obviously we get, we get tired at times and you have these fatigued conversations with yourself and, and no doubt that, that kind of brings out certain, certain questions and question, more questioning of your, of your worth of what you do as work. Um, so that's certainly a, a, a topic of conversation that, that's been floating around in my head probably more than ever. Um, Can we pause and on I know that second? Yeah, yeah. How do you talk to yourself about... Because the question there is, why do I work in advertising? Because a lot of people, including my daughter, don't like advertising. So why do I do it? How do you mm. answer that? You go through layers of, of those, those to and fro's. I mean, one is because I'm good at it um, and because I get paid well to do it. And there's a certain level of, I think, fulfillment that comes with people recognizing what you do as being valuable, um, both with their... I guess their appreciation, but also with with money, and so that has a, I guess, a kind of short term, at least, 
uh, affirmation of what you're doing is is worthy. But at times when you're fatigued and having kind of fatigued self-talk, you need you need another layer of it. And the the you know one of the things that I go to is thinking about and and it, they, this can seem like a really kind of kind of grandiose um, argument for why we do what we do, but I, I I do believe that by by imbuing brands with certain feelings um, and certain values that they wouldn't otherwise have, you can actually create more satisfaction for the people that choose those brands. And you know, people point at advertising as being something that creates overconsumption, but if you can add meaning to something that creates a little bit more fulfillment or a little bit more satisfaction in it, then then hopefully you're you're doing the opposite somewhere. But is that like I'm I'm interested in in your take on that as well because I have that argument with myself in my head and then I go, Are you have you just made up a good argument because you know you learned critical thinking at uni or like how true is this? Um and so that's where you know you, you kind of start having more of those doubts about um, the other person in your head who who's coming at it from that point of view. So, you know, as far as working in advertising, I, I think there are many ways to post-rationalize it. I think it's really important to point out that Australia is is unique in many ways, but also like if you've, I don't know, if you've been fortunate enough to have a bit of an education and you want to do something that's kind of creative, then advertising in Australia is one of the few industries that you can go into. There's no Hollywood in Australia you kind of have one industry and maybe you can make some movies, but at some point you're going to have to move to LA. And so advertising in Australia actually collects a lot of brains that in many other parts of the world, not all, but in many other parts of the world, they wouldn't be in advertising. They'd be doing more immediately and personally creative work, which is not to talk down about advertising. So there are so many ways to post-rationalize how you work in the industry. I think for a lot of people, you know, you go, well, I work in a capitalistic system and advertising is what everybody does, including if you just want to date someone and you want to trap them into marrying you, you're advertising to them. Therefore, I'm just going to help that, right? Not a bad thing. It's basically in the system that we're in. Uh, the way that I think about a lot of the work that I do, which is to try to find a higher ground, absolutely, it, actually, it really is actually, but it's not to do it in a pompous way is what I've realized in the past few years is that the conversations that I have with people in this industry, I don't get to have them in many other places. And so for me, you want to talk about a creative brief or a framework or a template? Cool. I guarantee within 20 to 30 minutes, if I have my way, we'll be talking about life and, and deeper topics because this industry in many parts of the world does collect people who do have um, the brains that I find chemistry with. Right, So I have both of those, I guess, levers or levers to pull on to, to justify why I'm in it. It's exciting. It's interesting. It takes care of you. I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel to a whole bunch of countries. I was making rap magazines. I had an anti-capitalism, anti-money attitude in my teens and 20s. But you know, I guess I was fortunate enough to earn a living to do something that was sort of creative. It's also a weird conversation to have with yourself in some ways because you're right. It's interesting. It's exciting. It takes care of you. Generally, get to work with good people in in an environment that's that's relatively safe um, and pleasant to work in. And like, how, how much of a first world problem is it to go along and say, "Well, that's not enough." I mean, for, for most people in the world, you'd be thankful to have gainful employment that looks after you and allows you to look after your family mm. in an environment that's safe. Yes. Um, and we absolutely have that. So 
yeah, these internal questions also come with a little bit of guilt with why am I even worrying about this? Like stop complaining and go to work, which might be the right, the right advice to give yourself Partly, too. But look, look, if I can use two, two big words, I think a lot of the work of the strategist or the account planner, and there's no surprise here, I'm not trying to reveal anything like, well, I never thought about this before. I just want to put two things together. The two big words are existential and vicarious. Existential, existence, strategy, brand strategy especially deals with existence. Why does that brand exist? How do those people who buy that brand exist? How do I exist? Because that's totally what's going on when we do research. We're often, not always, but often looking into how do those people exist and how does that help me make sense of my own existence? Vicarious is just a fancy word for like, uh, I don't know, a thing that's at arm's length. I do a thing here and maybe that affects a thing there and that affects someone else and blah, blah, blah. But you put those two things together and you basically got strategy folk with often pretty good or aggressive and crazy brains trying to come up with ideas that might affect someone else, that might affect someone else, that might affect someone else. And you know the story. Like It's, it's almost cliche that, that sometimes that energy in trying to work themselves out by working out other people, they just don't put it to themselves to work out what they're about. To me, and I, I honestly believe that that's the journey for a lot of people. Not, not honestly, not the people from like stable families who know what they're about and who see advertising as a way to seek status. But I feel like that's like about a quarter of the industry, and there's a whole bunch of other people who kind of fell into this. They've got crazy but interesting brains, and they're just trying to work out how to live. And for a lot of them, they're doing that through a creative brief. And of, and of course, when you when you use up that part of your brain and that part of um, the way you think on doing things for other brands um, most of the time, of course you don't apply it to yourself because that part of your thinking is tired and and it's hard to then turn around and and, um, think that way for yourself and the way that you do for for your clients and the brands you work on. Well, you've earned this question then. Provocative thinking is the brand essence of the monkeys, one of the best creative agencies in the world. What would be some provocative thinking that you might do to yourself right now? I'm not sure I, uh, I, I kind of allow my provocative thinking to delve into my own life. I might, I might kind of keep a little uh, uh, arm's length or a bit of, uh, Safer that allow, as in your words, allowing it to happen vicariously um, through, through work instead um, rather, than, rather than doing that. Do you like, being, think, malle- you know, do you like being malleable? Yeah, yeah I do. I, you know, I, I think one, one thing that I have been provoking myself on a lot through this year and having spent more time at home and the, the two sides of the coin that come with that and being at home and around your kids more is it's great because you're there and you're around them more um, and you get to see them during the day and be part of all those little, little moments. Sometimes they're painful, but, but they're, all, they're all worth it. The other side of that is that when you then go off to work, you know what you're missing out on. And it's, it's heartbreaking in a way that a couple of years ago just wasn't because I just was just not aware of what was going on back at home and didn't know what I was missing out on. So it didn't, didn't matter. Um, and so I've been trying to provoke my way into how I make the most of that realization and don't just process the heartbreak in a way that goes, oh, it'd be easier if I just went to work all day and, and came home just in time for bedtime if I'm lucky or afterwards. But how can I, how can I make the most of that feeling of, being really aware of what you're missing out on 
in a in a positive way for how we how I set up my life um, in future years. Yeah, and it is it is a word that um, comes. It does come with that baggage of do something offensive or do something that's going to turn people off just for the sake of getting a reaction. Um, and I think you've you've just got to get past that that kind of most obvious answer of what it means to provoke, and to then get to the point where well, you just want to provoke some kind of emotional response. So let's talk about disgust as a, as a response that you might want to um, elicit from people. Um, the Australian government's been one of the more successful around the world in reducing smoking rates. And a lot of that is due to them pinpointing the emotional response they wanted to have around disgust, um, which is not a normal thing that you'd want people to, to feel. But what they were able to do over a long period of time was to both socially, so when you look at someone smoking, to create this moment of um, disgust, but also when you consider smoking and consider opening a packet, you feel disgust in that. And it's taken a really long time, but by them um, provoking that reaction of feeling of disgust, they've they've been able to reduce smoking rates, which is which has been a, a good thing. I, you know, as a part-time smoker, I confront some of the uh, the difficulties of of lighting up once in a while, but um, it, it's it's a it's generally a good thing for us that they've been able to do that. So um, there are sometimes maybe counterintuitive reactions that you, you might want to provoke. All right, last question for you. What's, what's your word for 2021? Affection. I think it's the, the thing that a lot of people have been missing through this year. A lot of people are you. That, no, it is. It is. It is partly for me as well, and that's really Giving that shared experience it. that we've all had. So, oh, both, both, and we've been lucky here. Like in Sydney, we've we've only been kept apart for a certain amount of time, and and you know, a lot of people around the world would be shocked to see that we're the way we're interacting with each other right now. Like we're touching each other, you know, we're shaking hands, and this stuff is happening, and it's and here it it, it is okay apparently. Um, so there is a level of kind of physical contact that's happening, happening here and his, and his back, but not everyone's been nearly as lucky as that. And, it, and, and even though we have, there's still a whole lot of holding back of all of that because people are so uncertain. When, when we all collectively do get to a point where we can feel comfortably showing affection to each other, I think it's going to be a really, really powerful thing, rediscovering that thing that we've all been missing so much. Yeah, I, look, you know, I feel like Australia should move to Brazil for about five years and then it would actually know what the word affection meant. Did, did you get much affection growing up, especially with a psychologist's dad? Last question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I did. My dad's a big burly bloke that gives uh, very big big hugs and uh, is incredibly affectionate. So I was, I was lucky in, in that way. And, um, and that's one thing I'm really, really keen to pass on. My, my two kids are very different in that way. So it's funny when you're seeing it come back at you in two really different ways. Um, you know, a three-year-old that is a little bit, you know, standoffish. And then our youngest is... Uh, just can't can't help but jump all over you. So it's it's funny when you get a bit of contrast between your own kids and seeing them both um, be quite different in terms of how they display affection. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a funny thing, and I think it's something that we maybe didn't realise we missed, and maybe won't fully realise until until we get a bit of it back. Love it. Well, uh, if you if you if people want to find you on the internet or the monkeys on the internet or both, where's the best place to look? I'm 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 hard to find now, but. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm drawing you out. <laughs> um, I guess so I'm still on LinkedIn. Uh, so where can people find the monkeys? Uh, Google the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really helpful. Um, 
themonkeys.com.au. I'm saying that really tentatively because I actually don't know if that's our URL. This is really professional of me to not know what our URL is. I'm, I'm, I'm actually Googling it now oh, to mate, make sure you, I know what I'm getting it right. give you a job in America. Like you'd just be like, nah, <laughs> not, not that guy. Not that I'm guy. Not, I'm like, I, I couldn't do it. I, I, I might be a little bit malleable, but I think um, that would be just enough to break me into my brittle little pieces if I even tried. Um, I'm just yeah, teasing. can't hire I'm the teasing. guy that can't reel off his agency's URL. I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Hugh, awesome <laughs> to have a chat to you. Uh, I hope to see you in Australia in the next year or two if they let me in. And uh, look forward to seeing the work that you can do with the monkey. It's definitely an, an amazing agency and an agency to watch. And it's really surreal. You know, you're a few years younger than me. And uh, when you came into the agency that we worked together at, which was McCann, and seeing the energy after the interview, it's beautiful because that energy carries through. And it's something that's on my mind when, I don't know about you, but I get a lot of people asking about, you know, how do I get a job? How do I create a portfolio? Should I create a portfolio? How do I interview? And I think to people like you and, uh, you know, there's just like this clean note that people with an interesting brain, with an interesting attitude and a series of aptitudes in life, they, they just sing this clean note and it can carry on for decades. And to me, that's what you are, Hugh Munro. You're a clean note, but you've, you're definitely vicarious, mate. And I, I look forward to catching up in, in, in person because we'll have an even franker conversation. And I know that. And uh, I appreciate you for uh, just turning up today in the basement in which you are in uh, Surrey Hills talking into a microphone that you've never talked into before. So thank you for being here. No, I, 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 I can't wait to catch up with you personally. And uh, just to add a little bit of grabbiness to that clean note, I can't wait uh, for your book to arrive. Thank you, Hugh. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining me on Sweater today, mate. Thanks, Mark. Peace.